Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. I'm quite all right sitting here on Thursday evening recording this not long after our 11th straight win in all competitions. I mean, that's pretty good going by anybody's standards. A 1-0 win away to Sporting in Lisbon. A clean sheet away from home. And uh, surprisingly to me, anyway, this apparently was our first ever European win on Portuguese soil. So another little feather in the cap for Unai Emery and his team as they continue this quite excellent run of results. It means now that we're top of our Europa League group, we've got nine points. Sporting are on uh, six. And in the other game in our group this evening, Vorskla beat Karabag. 1-0. So the Ukrainians went to Azerbaijan and they beat the old uh, carpetbaggers there. So they've got three points to their name. Karabag propping up the group uh, with no points. It means that if we win our next game against Sporting, which is in the Emirates, Uh, next month, then I think we top the group. I don't think there's any way that we can be overtaken because I believe it's head-to-head before you go to goal difference and all that kind of stuff. And as Sporting are the only team that could possibly get the same points total, well, then we would go through as uh, as group winners for all the good that that does, I guess. I guess it does some good. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm just thinking a little too far ahead here. Either way, we had a job to do tonight, and we did that job, and we can go back to to London this evening and prepare for a game against Crystal Palace on Sunday. You might remember our previous Europa League game saw us away from home to a London side, uh, an early kickoff on a Sunday. It's more or less the same thing, although kickoff is 1.30 rather than 12 noon. Last time we went to Fulham and beat Fulham 5-1. So anything similar to that at Selhurst Park on Sunday would be very, very welcome indeed. But look, we are going to talk a little bit more about the game tonight, the performance, some of the individual performances and everything else in just a couple of minutes time with Lewis Ambrose a little bit later on I will be chatting to Rory Smith of the New York Times he wrote a really good piece last week in which he talked to a number of Arsenal shareholders people who've had shares for a long time people who have a very emotional attachment to their shares and who spoke to him about the prospect of losing them or having already lost them ostensibly to Stan Kroenke and KSE and uh, I'll chat to Rory about that and maybe the the 
the broader subject of uh, football club ownership and Premier League and English football club ownership with the uh, the extremely wealthy and rich and perhaps at times morally dubious elements of people who have that kind of money and the way that they operate and everything else. So we'll chat to Rory about that and a bit about Arsenal and Unai Emery. First, though, let's uh, let's recap what happened in the in the game between Sporting and Arsenal in Lisbon uh, last night, tonight, you know how it goes. And with me to discuss a man who writes the tactics column here on arsblog.com, it's Lewis Ambrose. Hi, Lewis. Hi, Andrew. It wasn't, it's fair to say, the most enthralling or exciting of European games. We've had more fun on different nights, I guess. But in the wider context, uh, before we go into the specifics of the game... There's something interesting about the way Arsenal under Unai Emery are winning games without necessarily playing particularly well. And you could say, uh, in some ways, okay, it's maybe riding your luck a little bit at times. Maybe there's just a bit more resilience or physicality. But when you've done it 11 times, or at least a a good number of times within those 11 games, you, you have to feel that there's something positive about it. It's definitely not a bad trait to have. No. I think it's I think it's probably one of the most if you can put it that way if to spin it in a positive way one of the most exciting things right now could possibly be um the fact that we're winning games but it feels like a lot of the time there's so much more to come from the team. Yeah. Um if you're winning games and it doesn't feel like certain things are clicking right now then when they do click cuz I'm sure just not even anything necessarily to do with the manager, but when we have so many good players, then you'd expect us to be just clicking, just things falling into place a little more often than it looks like they're doing at the moment. So they will, they did certainly against Leicester on Monday night in the, for after the shaky first half hour or so that we had. And then as we saw against Leicester, we could just blow teams away. We've got the players to do it. So yeah, if we're picking up these points and not playing well at the moment, then you'd have to hope we'd start to play a little bit better. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with having the points on the board before that happens. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, I think we saw tonight perhaps the the difficulty of of juggling the two competitions, the Premier League and the Europa League. There's clearly half an eye on what's coming up on Sunday against Crystal Palace and also a need for him to, to include uh, some players in the squad who aren't playing in Premier League terms. You know, you think of Licksteiner, who ordinarily wouldn't be playing. You know, if we had a left back, he would have played tonight, probably in place of Bellerin, but he's not playing in Premier League. Mohamed Elneny, Genduzi, you know, guys who are in and out of the team in a way. And it can really affect the way that you you perform. It's difficult to maintain the kind of fluency uh, that you would like when you are making that many changes. Yeah, I think with those players you named, Lichsteiner, Guendouzi, they've not only have they not been playing lately, they've never played together. It's just never happened because they've joined the club recently. Or El Nenny then as well. He's never played with either of those guys. So it's a bit of a mishmash of Emery clearly wants to put out a pretty strong team. He's not going to go out there and play Emil Smith-Rowe in every Europa League game or mm. Eddie Nketiah wasn't, uh, I don't think he even travelled to Lisbon. So he want, he's not going to sacrifice the competition or just think, oh, the kids will get it done. He obviously wants to take these games semi-seriously. But yeah, it's, it's a little bit, it disrupts certainly the rhythm of the team. 
you need to give these guys minutes. We saw with Lichsteiner against Leicester on Monday, it might just happen that you get a couple of injuries in a position and Elneny has to come into the team or Genduzzi, and you obviously don't want them to come in completely cold, having not played all season long. But obviously that comes with downsides as well. Um, I thought tonight was strange. Also just everything around the game, the atmosphere, both teams... Usually after in Europe, after a couple of games, the groups kind of open still. But both teams already had six points. There was nobody under huge pressure to perform or to get a result. Mm. Um, I think those guys as well, Lichstein, Elnet, and they they know they're not likely to get into the Premier League side. They also probably coming in, having not played for weeks, just don't want to make a huge mistake. Mm. And that can obviously inhibit your game as well when you're playing, no matter what level you're playing at. But playing, you know, European football, playing away from home mm. in Portugal against a big club, you're not, you don't really want players to be going out there playing inhibited, playing like they feel like they can't make mistakes because this is the only shot they're going to get. They're not going to have a reprieve if they do mess up. Somebody else is going to come in for them. Mm. Um, I think it's all a bit strange. And I also think this early kickoff in playing in Portugal is obviously really south in Lisbon. Um, And it was so light outside still for the majority of, well, at least for the entire first half. The stadium didn't seem very full or very vibrant and it felt a little bit like a friendly at times. Yeah, the kickoff time is weird, isn't it? Getting used to that five to six kickoff. I mean, it's five to seven in Lisbon. Or no, are they on the same time? I I think think, it's the same time zone. I think they're the same time zone, yeah, because they were talking during the commentary about how people were flooding into the stadium, so maybe people were getting out of work. it was kind of empty, actually. Yeah, I think people just were either getting... There was also, I think Arsenal put up a tweet, actually, about how there was a a demonstration or a march in the Liz- in Lisbon city centre. So that may well have disrupted transport or access to the stadium for a number of people. So perhaps that played into it. But I think in general, you're right. It is a, a strange kickoff time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I don't know, the group stages of the Europa League don't tend to give us, you know, the, the big European nights or the big atmospheres. Yeah. But you know, And like I said as well, I think both teams on six points. The Europa League also doesn't carry this. Like the like the Champions League does, there's not quite as much weight on. Oh, if you win the group, you avoid one of the real big boys. Yeah. Um, we are the big boys of the Europa League, so <laughs> I, it didn't feel like. Yeah, it just, if you finished first or second in the group, I don't. It, I don't think it has a huge bearing on things. And yeah, both teams were in a good position in the group going into the game. So I think Sporting almost they knew they might get a result against us tonight, but. If they couldn't, they're almost definitely going to go through anyway. It was just a strange one all round. Yeah, let's um, let's talk about some of the positives because I think there were some for Arsenal. Uh, I thought Matteo Genduzzi was an interesting performer again. I mean, I look at him and I see things in his game that that frustrate me a little bit. But I know at the same time they're mostly because he's 19 years of age and he's making or has made a huge step up from League Two to join a club like Arsenal. Um, the the dallying sometimes in possession, the way he gets caught in possession and looks for a free kick, which most of the time he doesn't <laughs> seem to get. That's something he's going to have to he's going to have to snap out of a little bit. But I think how to make sure he gets the free kick. Well, yeah, there's the other thing. A bit more experience, you know. Do 
take a take a few les- uh, lessons from Licksteiner to figure out how you get yourself a free kick. Um, make sure you roll around about five times. Um, but you know that aside, I thought it was a really interesting performance from him. Very controlled in in midfield, passed the ball really well. I think he was the the highest uh, pass completer in Arsenal, or made the most passes anyway. Seventy six out of eighty two passes. I mean, I think Arsenal's passing stats were were really good tonight. Even Jack at left back was somewhere up in the eighty five, eighty six um, position. So, um, were you encouraged by what you saw from Genduzi? I like Genduzi. I think he's. Like you already just touched on, it's been a, it's a massive step up from where he was playing last season. So that's huge instantly. He is 19 years old. I think he makes mistakes that you would expect from a 19-year-old. They might be frustrating at times. But I also think he never hides. He makes those mistakes and then he's willing to make them again and or you know put himself in the same situation again where he could make the same mistake. Uh, I think... Yeah, it's a little bit too soon for him to be playing regularly for us, but he's definitely a good squad option already. And at 19, that's really promising. I think him taking time on the ball, like you said as well, is the biggest issue at the moment. I think he's a really good passer. I think he's an intelligent passer. The first the first real chance we had in that second half, Aubameyang went through on the right. Mkhitaryan mm. um, put him through, but it came from Glenduzi just kind of picking Mkhitaryan out in space behind the midfield and we could suddenly, it looked like nothing was really happening and we just suddenly launched an attack with two quick passes upfield and Guendouzi was the first one. I think that's something that I personally, anyway, I really like. He he wants to move the ball forward a lot. He doesn't always do it because it's not possible to always do it in those positions in front of the back four, but he doesn't mind taking the ball in front of the back four under pressure. He doesn't mind trying to play a risky pass. And at 19, he's only going to learn maybe not completely, but he's going to get better at learning when you should take those risks, when maybe you shouldn't, Mm. when to play the ball quicker. Um, Yeah, I think he's really, really promising. And I think we we want to judge players so quickly. And the first couple of games was... There was like people going, even in preseason, people going crazy. And then there was other people <laughs> with the, the sort of fight back of like, no, don't be stupid. He's a kid. He's never going to make it. And it just feels like everybody always jumps to these extremes. We always want to know exactly what every single one of the players are immediately. Um, he's 19 and he's going to grow and he's going to get better. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, there's something uh, interesting about the way that he almost hangs on to the ball in a way that's similar to Jack Wilshire. He kind of hangs on to it and draws the the opponent into him before he makes the pass, which is uh, a risky tactic at times because if you get caught in the ball, you're done for. But what you do when you, when you perform that successfully is you can take a player out of the game quite easily, you know, with a, with a quick triangle and you're, you're, you're gone. So I think there's a, there's quite a lot to like about his game and his enthusiasm. Another one who I thought stood out for me anyway, uh, you could disagree perhaps was Rob Holding at the back, who I think he made one mistake, a bad pass into, into midfield, which Nanny um, took a shot, went over the bar. I think it was Holding, um, but his defending and his reading of the game and his physicality in particular was something that I really enjoyed because he flattened a couple of their players uh, with what I thought were strong but fair challenges. He got a yellow card for one of them, which I thought was a little bit harsh. 
but I, I like you know I like a center half who can who can use his body and show his power and show his strength because it does inhibit the opposition if if you come up against that kind of a player who doesn't fancy the physical battle you know if you show him you're stronger you you're very much on the front foot for the rest of the game yeah or just flip it the other way and a striker gets the message that he can't physically bully holding I guess we saw it in a couple of years ago in the cup final with Diego Costa, when everyone was terrified that Holding would be shoved around and I think in the first minute he just took Costa out and let him know that that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I think he's been really impressive lately. We obviously had the injury to, or two injuries, two minor injuries for Socrates. So Holding got the chance to come in and play in the Premier League as well. And on current form, you'd have to say it would be a little bit harsh if he lost his place and Socrates or, or Mustafi um, were in the side ahead of him at the moment. I think on the balance of everything, we maybe he's not been the most impressive defender of the three game, game in, game out. But mm. as a team, we've certainly looked better defensively whenever Holding's been in the back four. And I think it would be a bit unfair to completely separate him from that. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, the other thing that strikes me about the game is... When Lucas Torreira came on, how much more pressure we were able to exert on a sporting team who perhaps were getting a little bit tired. But I think we see here the the growing influence of Torreira. He was involved in the goal. It was his pass into Aubameyang, which he flicked on, and Coates made the mistake. Welbeck went on to score. But he is becoming increasingly influential to Unai Emery in the way that he wants his team to play. You can understand why he was on the bench because we've got a big game away from home, a London derby at Crystal Palace on Sunday. But when he came on for El Nenny, the the two things that, that struck me were, I can see why Emery is quite cool on El Nenny, uh, but I can also see why and how Torreira is becoming a real favourite for Arsenal fans because of the way he influences the, the way we play football. Yeah, and he does it both ways as well. When you talk about him or us as a team managing to exert pressure to almost pin him back in their own half for a lot of that second half, and Torreira's role in that is it's two-pronged. He, on the one hand, he's an absolute machine at stopping counter-attacks at being in the right place at the right time, reading the game, covering gaps that would otherwise open up in midfield. So when our attacks do break down, they just don't lead to dangerous situations as often when he's on the pitch. And the other thing is we talked about El Nenny, uh, sorry, Gunduzi uh, taking time on the ball and it's something Jacker does. Jacker's a great passer, but he takes a hell of a long time yeah. whenever the ball comes into his feet. And Torreira, it feels like he very rarely takes three touches. The ball comes in, he stops it, and he plays it out again. Uh, whether he's going backwards, forwards, or playing it out wide, he just gets rid of it quickly. Not in a panicked kind of way, but it just looks kind of clinical. It just pulled the trigger, pass, gone, and we move the ball quicker. It moves opposition teams around quicker, and it's massive, I think. It's becoming more and more influential every week. You can see as well when he's on the ball, he is, and Ginduzi as well, in fairness to him, they're both looking for the pass between the lines, first and foremost. They'll move the ball sideways and they'll play the, the, the safety pass if they need to, but you can see them look up and they're you know beckoning people towards them. They want to pass the ball forwards through midfield, which is perhaps 
something we have been missing. You know, there's uh, sterile possession, I think, is what Arsene Wenger used to say about games where we had 70% of the ball, but we would just, uh, what did someone call it recently? I heard them, like horseshoe football, where you just go from one side to the other, you know, which is fine. And, you know, we could do that week in, week out. But when you've got somebody who's willing to take the risk or take the chance of putting the ball forward, it can make a huge difference to how you all of a sudden are on the front foot. I mean, you remember when we had, for example, Jack Wilshire and we had Thomas Rosicki in the team, the way that we broke through the lines was their skill, their ability to to find a burst of pace, a little bit of a, a skill and dribbling going forward, get past a couple of players, and all of a sudden the defense is turning or, or the uh, the midfield is, is on the turn as well, chasing backwards towards you rather than facing the play. And I think what we've got with Genduzzi and Torreira are two players who can make that happen, not through dribbling necessarily, but through incisive passing. Yeah, I think it's important to have a mixture of those two things, uh, really. And I think you're right, um, Wilshire Rosicki was used a lot like that as a sub in the last couple of years. He was at the club, he would come on and inject some sort of drive into the team when everything was a little bit flat. And usually that was by, he would get the ball and, and just turn and into a space and try and move forward with the ball at his feet. And Gunduzi and Torreira are much more... Torreira moves away from from pressure really, really well, but that's not how he drives the team forward. He definitely does it with his passing. I think it's interesting that we've got these, under Unai Emery, we've got these narrow wingers, and it's they just sort of position themselves, not not on the, the touchline, but not in the middle of the pitch. And I think a centre-backs and a full-backs, they don't know where they should be or if they should be picking them up. And then if you can fizz passes in through the lines like that then into the players in those positions, I think that's the idea behind it. We've not done it really regularly so far, but if we do start to do that, then that's going to be huge for us. That's often where the space is, especially when the full-backs overlap and they can stretch the opposition across the pitch. That's certainly something we used against Fulham quite a lot or quite well. Torreira, again, he's just really, really good at that. He's, and a lot of it is how quickly he moves the ball because if you take one, two, three touches and the gap just closes. Yeah. Whereas I think a bit of it is having a picture of where he wants to play the ball before he's even received it. And I think other players know that they're going to get the ball from him too. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Quick word for the uh, goal scorer. Danny Welbeck, it's his fifth goal of the season, I think. Uh, he was unlucky to have his first effort disallowed. Uh, I thought that was a good goal. I think the defender slipped. It wasn't a, necessarily yeah. a push. Uh, the referee was generous to the home side there, uh, even if he was maybe a little bit generous towards Socrates in, in the first half. So maybe even that one up. But the uh, the finish between the keeper's legs, absolutely clinical. Yeah, you can't really fault Danny Welbeck's performance. He didn't. He was feeding off scraps for a lot of the, a lot of the game. I think you would have to say the first half there was one dangerous attack that we really had, and that came from him. It was a, the ball over the top from Aubameyang, mm. and Welbeck's pace. Sometimes you forget just how quick Danny Welbeck is. I think maybe just maybe because he's not playing, maybe because he doesn't get that often where he can really stretch to, stretch his legs and get in behind a defence. But, um, yeah, that was a, probably our best moment in the first half. And like you say, I think the goal that was disallowed was really unfair. And he pounced on the the mistake from Coates. And 
for once Danny Welbeck went through on goal and you didn't even think for a second that he might miss. I was actually quite confident as he went through. He's looked really, really sharp this season whenever he's played and I don't know if he's playing for a contract. I don't like as in I don't know if that's still on the table, if there are talks. But if right now you'd have to say it'd be a massive loss if we lost Danny Welbeck for absolutely nothing because it would cost a hell of a lot of money to sign a striker who is having as much of an impact on games as he's having for us at the moment. Mm-hmm. Even though we've got these two strikers in Aubameyang and Lacazette, there are plenty of games Welbeck can play. He plays wide a lot as well. We saw we played with two up front against Fulham. Mm. There are definitely a lot of moments, especially if we're going to be playing in the Europa League and sort of rotating the side where Welbeck's really, really useful to us. And I think it would be a big shame to lose him. Well, it would be a shame to lose him for, for nothing, for sure. And you do wonder maybe if... Maybe the the smart move might be to give him a deal and think about selling him in a year or in 18 months' time so you can get some money back for, for him, but you maintain and you keep a, a pretty versatile and effective player when he is fit. Because I think a lot of the, the issues with Danny Welbeck... You know, he's never going to be the first-choice striker. I think we know that. I think he knows that. But he can play across the front line as a striker, as uh, left-sided or right-sided even, uh, part of the front three. And he, if he stays fit, he can score He can score goals like he scored tonight, but he can also score them by accident as well, which is, uh, you know, it's nice to have <laughs> two strings to your bow. Um, just before we let you go, Lewis, as you are based in Germany, there is a lot of excitement about what Reese Nelson is doing for Hoffenheim. He is their leading scorer so far this season. He picked up a couple of goals at the weekend uh, on top of a, to- a couple of goals that he got in previous games. They didn't win those games that he scored in before, but it's a really, really promising start to his uh, to his loan spell there. Yeah, I don't think anyone quite expected this. I think Hoffenheim obviously saw something in him to you know to get him in on loan this is a Champions League club we're talking about so it's not like he's gone to a mid-table team or anything in Germany it's they're not a big club they're not a great club but they are playing in the Champions League um and they obviously saw something they liked about Reese Nelson it was there was a bit of question I think when he arrived about where he'd play because they don't really play with wingers they tend to play with a back five and I don't think it would really be beneficial for him to spend more time at wing back after that's how he got some opportunities at Arsenal last season and yeah he went there having not scored a professional goal yet he's got four in I think it's four or five games now he came off the bench in the Champions League the other night Yeah, and it's been a really really good start his performances haven't always been strong and Julian Nagelsmann the coach there touched on that the other day before the Champions League game and just wanted the media to kind of keep calm and not start hyping Nelson up too much and not put him necessarily immediately in the same league right now as Jaden Sancho. But I think, yeah, it's really, really refreshing to see one of our players, firstly, after the last few years, just one of our players go out on loan and it looks like it's a benefit to them and to us. And also an English player going into another league I think it's a that's another thing that could be great for Arsenal to see if Nelson were to come back and to get opportunities I think we can encourage other players to go out on loan abroad because Mm. right now 
Premier League loans, loans to the Championship, we just don't seem to gain anything out of any of them. And teams in Germany, in France, in Spain, just seem more likely to use young players, to use players in a way and that they encourage attacking football. I think that'd be far better to us than like when we sent Gnabry out to West Brom and Tony sure. Pulis had no interest in playing him. Do you, I mean, is there something beneficial to the fact that he is in Germany and slightly detached from the English media who as really know they love to build up a, a young English talent you don't necessarily have to play well consistently if you're young and English in England for the English press the English football media to start talking about you in glowing terms whereas you know you look at what Jaden Sancho was doing for Dortmund and he was doing it quite consistently for Dortmund before anybody really started to pay an awful lot of attention. It was almost an afterthought, the fact that this still a kid really has gone to a big club like Borussia Dortmund. You know, there was it was as if they weren't necessarily that interested because he was doing it for Dortmund. If he'd been doing it for Southampton or something, they would have been all over it. But, you know, to some extent, is is that a protection for him? Um, you know, you talk about the coach. Well, what was his great line this week? That you need to be more than a one-hit wonder. I think that was a really nice yeah, way of putting it. yeah. Something about a, a one-hit wonder it puts bread on the table for a few weeks, but that's about it. Yeah. So he is at some remove from the hype machine, as much as that's possible in this media world that we live in, right? Because uh, the internet brings us all closer together in one happy, lovely family community of uh, the world and football and everything else. But, you know, he is slightly away from the hype machine that, that would be in action. So... Uh, I mean, do you see that as an advantage? I think it helps. I think well, it helps. I'm sorry the, to, to interrupt. I mean, what is, are, are the German press the same in that way? I mean, they wouldn't be in, as invested in Reese Nelson as the English press would be because obviously he's not English, but you know, are there the same tendencies? Well, yeah. So obviously a teenager comes from a club like Arsenal to Germany and scores four goals in four games. People are n- noticing it in Germany. Definitely there was... It's definitely some excitement before the Champions League game after he scored twice against Nuremberg, but I think that's what Nagelsmann was doing. He was doing his best to nip that in the bud. Nelson himself, I don't think... Even even if people start going wild in Germany, he can't read the papers or, um, or necessarily understand everything that's being said on TV unless he's got some fantastic German teacher already. So I think that helps too. Yeah. It's even if there is a little bit of hype, which obviously there's not as much. Him being on loan, him not being a German player, there would be far more if if those two things weren't the case. Yeah, there's people are starting to talk about it. Definitely not not like he's a German player, not like he's come out of a, an academy at a big club. Being at Hoffenheim also helps in that regard. It's with in the politest way possible nobody cares about Hoffenheim Um, they are in the Champions League but it's a small club in a small village with no tradition no history hardly any fans and people just no matter how much you know how it works (laughs) things that certainly other websites write um, you know if, if a kid comes through at Chelsea or Arsenal at Manchester United then people start to go insane German websites won't even start going on about Reese Nelson for clicks because nobody's going to read about Hoffenheim. Really? They're, uh, that, they're that sort of low down the totem pole of of what what, what generates clicks and hits and interest? It's, it's like the same sort of situation 
more or less as Leipzig, um, where somebody, um, not to go into the whole story, but yeah, yeah, a former Hoffenheim player turned businessman took over the club a little while ago and kind of decided, yeah, I want to make this club really big because I care about it a lot, but nobody else does. Um, But that, so, that, that's surely enough for yeah, Hoffenheim uh, fans. That's what we're like, you know, crying out for at Arsenal in a way, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But without any of the tradition and history sure. that I think we're so fond of. Um, yeah, they're kind of, they're really disliked in Germany um, because of that. Like I say, in a kind of, in a Chelsea money injecting kind of way that German football tries to be so resistant to, but it's kind of leaking into the game more and more. Um, yeah, so I I just don't think it will kind of the hype but it won't grow out of control like you might expect it to even if he continues playing really really well it will until maybe people start mentioning him for an England call up and then we're in trouble yeah um, but yeah and I also think just lastly on a personal growth kind of level to go to a new country at 18 I think that's really really big and something that obviously our players or our English players have never done before. I think that's something that should be a huge benefit for him. He's not living with his family. He's got to go into a squad that's already, it's young squad at Hoffenheim, but it's people are established there. They all know each other. It's been together for a little while and he's got to go and try and fit in with that and make friends and get on with everybody and, just learn a bit of a new culture and I think that's huge as well all right well look we'll uh we'll check in with you again obviously as the season goes on and we can check on uh the progression of Reese Nelson but so far so good for him and obviously so far so good for Arsenal 11 out of 11 Lewis thanks a million thanks you can find Lewis on Twitter at LG Ambrose that's at LG Ambrose and you can read his columns on arsblog.com just click on the columnist tab in the menu bar look for tactics and you will find his stuff there Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Okay, joining me now on the Arscast, the chief football writer for the New York Times. Delighted to welcome back to the show, Rory Smith. Hi, Rory. Hi, mate. How are you? Very well, thank you. I want to talk to you first about an article that you wrote last week called Their Arsenal, Their Shares for Now. And it's about people, uh, small shareholders in Arsenal Football Club who will see their shares taken away or purchased, compulsory purchased by KSE and Stan Kroenke after everything that's gone on. Everyone knows that Ali Sharuzmanov, after saying that he wouldn't sell up, has sold up. And of course, that means Stan Kroenke can take 100% control of Arsenal and 100% of the shares in Arsenal, the first time that it's ever happened. And, and you spoke to five fairly different fans or there's even a fan group i think the the arsenal fan group in denmark who had a share as well um the the stories i mean there's obviously a similar theme running through them people who did not want to sell and who feel like in some way that their connection to the club has now been changed irrevocably because of what's happening yeah that sums up quite nicely to be honest it would have been a lot shorter if i just done that um the uh (laughs) yeah it it struck me as being really interesting that but obviously that i think understandably when when the the Cronky offer 
kind of went through that the focus was on Usmanov and the fact that he'd withdrawn and we all get dazzled I think as, as journalists and as fans by these by these million billion dollar sums that are banded around and obviously the the valuation that Kroenke placed on Usmanov's shares meant that this was the most expensive takeover of a football club in history and it's really easy to kind of be distracted by all of that but the the thing that was unique with Arsenal as, as all Arsenal fans know was that was this sense that 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 fans individual fans had these these little tiny slices of the club and yeah. although the power that they brought with them was basically pretty ceremonial you could kind of go to the AGM and ask a question I think to a fan to own a piece of their team that's that for a lot of people is a dream come true and I knew kind of in the back of my mind that a lot of them had been passed down from from fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers to, to sons and daughters and it just struck me as being interesting to find out kind of a how people went about getting those shares and how many of them were, were legacy shares, I guess, how many were inherent, inherit, inherited rather than purchased. Yeah. But also what what having a share in a team does to your relationship to that team, because we, you know, we all support a club, we all feel part of a club, but I think owning, owning a little bit, bit of something does give you a, a greater sense of propriety, I guess, of, um, of, of ownership, of involvement. And I think it was Martha Silker, who was one of the people, I suppose, who said, compared it to the difference between renting and, and owning a house. You know, if you, if you rent a house for a long period of time, you get really attached to it, it's yours, it's your home. If you own the house, mm. you are in some way, you're, you're in slightly deeper somehow, because you, you have this, this connection, I guess, that can't be severed, that is legal. And that seemed to be how everybody, no matter how long they'd, they'd had the shares for, the, the Arsenal Denmark bought theirs, I think the most recently, that was two, sort of 2007. But there was a guy called Jeffrey Freeman who's had a share since 1965 and a woman called Lindsay Rawlings whose granddad bought those shares yeah. when he worked on the stock exchange. She doesn't know exactly when that happened, but I would guess it was kind of 1920s, 1930s. These are heirlooms. These are things that are passed down from generation to generation in the same way as, I don't know, a watch or a painting or any trinket, any memory of your mm. your family might be. And that gives them a real power. And to rem- what Cronky's done in business makes, makes total sense. Like it's not, you can't criticise his, bus- his business strategy. But I think what appealed to me about the story was the fact that it's, it's that exact intersection of where football as a business and football as something else, as, a, as an emotion, as a, as a passion, as a love, that's where they intersect when you take something that has been owned by someone purely for emotion and remove it from them purely for business that's a really interesting tension not just hopefully to Arsenal fans but to 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 all fans of all clubs yeah I think what's the thing that strikes me about it and I think it's really sad and people might say look what difference does it make to you you know Kroenke's a businessman this is the way football works these days suck it up you know, if you're going to pay your money for your season ticket or if you're going to pay for your Sky subscription, you're all part of this gigantic football uh, business bubble or what have you. But I think what what really struck me was how most of them suggested that this changed the way that they thought about the club. I think uh, the lady that you mentioned there, uh, Lindsay Rawlings, says, this whole process has really turned me off the club. And it's now trying to make the distinction between Arsenal as a football club and Arsenal as a football club owned by by Stan Kroenke. And it's it's a shame because, as you say, that's a third-generation shareholder from her grandfather to her parents to her, and she wanted to pass those shares on to her children, had already turned down a big money offer to do that, uh, and that's been taken away. So it, 
it isn't just uh, about what the financial benefit of this might be and whether it has a massive impact on your on your day to day life. It is affecting the way people have a relationship with the club they've supported all these years. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was slightly slightly surprised, but not entirely shocked that a lot of the reaction I got on Twitter was was people saying, "Well, look, these are rich people. They they they." They're about to get loads of money for these shares. Like, I don't expect me to feel sympathy for them, and that's you know that's that's fine. I would, I would say that they're not especially rich people. A lot of them bought the shares when when they they were the equivalent when Jeffrey Freeman bought his. They were the equivalent of a week's wages per mm. share, which is you know a decent amount of money and and not something that everyone can afford. But you're not talking kind of plutocrat levels of wealth. And even when when Martha Silkett, who bought hers in sort of the early 2000s, it was about four grand, and that's a lot of money, and I, you know, yeah. I wouldn't, part, wouldn't part with four grand easily, but it's a second-hand car, it's a really, fan, really fancy watch, it's, it's not beyond the realms of imagination that you might spend four grand on something, for, for, for a lot of people, not for everybody obviously, but there are, there are plenty of people who might have something worth that much, people spend a grand on a television, um, yeah. so you're not talking ridiculous levels of wealth, and equally... I think the share price when the takeover went through was 29 grand per share, which is a huge amount of money mm. and certainly not the amount of money you'd sort of, you'd turn down easily, but it's not, it's not millions. It's not life changing. It's, it's not kind of, it's not going to mean you can, you can stop work or you can buy a mansion or hire a private jet. It, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a year's salary and that's, that's fantastic, but it's not the same as a lottery win. And I think that sounds a bit weird and it's a weird thing to talk about being British. I don't like talking about money. But the, I think it's important to get it into perspective that you're not talking about they can't now live a life of leisure just because they've sold an Arsenal share. Um, and what all of them said pretty uniformly was that for, for any amount of money, they didn't want to sell. They wanted the yeah. share. And I think we all have things like that in our lives that unless unless circumstances were really dire, you'd probably rather keep hold of. The example I used on Twitter would probably resonate with you, and that's my dog. If someone came along and offered me 100 grand for my dog, I'd yeah. say no, because yeah. my, he's my dog. Yeah. Well, I'd say he's my, he's my dog. He lives with me, whether I own him is a different matter. But the, oh, um, let's not get into the semantics of dog ownership, <laughs> but yeah, I, know, I do know what you mean. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. You, you have to, like, worth and price are not, the, are not the same thing. There's a personal element to it. And they all said that it, it was something they didn't want to sell. And I think it's the act of forcibly removing them from people, admittedly with compensation. I think that is what's changed the relationship with the team. It no longer feels as though that you're part of an Arsenal family. It feels as though Arsenal is this thing that can that kind of has agency on you rather than mm. you, you have influence over, however minor. And I think that is a big change if you're used to that. If you've constructed your identity as a fan around being part of something and then you are told you are no longer part of this that i imagine is pretty pretty devastating to be honest and quite quite hard to get to, to come to terms with and i think it would make you feel differently about the team and i think as fans of, of all clubs we all have moments like that where where you find your relationship with your team changing a little bit whether that's from kind of the, the innocence of youth and that kind of all-powerful worship you have for your team when you're sort of 10 or 12 mm. to being a little bit more sort of distant from them when you're an adult because there's other stuff going on or because you know that certain players you don't really like or, or what have you or you, you've just been made bitter by years of disappointment but the <laughs> this is this was such a sort of sharp contrast and it was such a such a shock almost as they got a letter saying you you have to sell your share 
and the first the, the first letter they sent out apparently was relatively polite. Mm. The second one was was not so polite, and it was very much it was almost antagonistic. Where you know this big company is is taking this off you, you cannot resist. And someone else on Twitter said the best parallel is maybe people who are forced to sell their houses for a new runway or a new motorway or whatever compulsory purchase of a house, mm. where. To a lot of people, you'd sort of think, well, the money would be quite useful. It's all, they always pay over the odds. Um, so that's great. I can go and buy a better house in a different place and get on with my life. And for some people, that's fine. But there's always people who don't move. There's always people who say, no, I don't want to move. I drive across the M62 quite a lot, and there's a farm in the middle of it. Just the guy refused to move for the motorway. And it, you sort of think that must be miserable living there because you're in the middle of a motorway. Mm. But that that's his house yeah that's his farm so he's not moving and there's always people like that so you, i think that is that kind of relationship it's it's something that people felt so strongly connected to that they really didn't want to be forced to part with it and that has made them look less favorably on the club although they did all i don't think any any of them said they would no longer support arsenal sure i don't think that changes but something has changed and maybe something's died yeah Undoubtedly. And, you know, anecdotally, more than anecdotally, I've had a number of emails from people who are in the same position who not only didn't want to sell their shares, they found the process through which they were forced to sell the shares, as you say, a bit antagonistic, as if there was absolutely no understanding on behalf of the people who who were getting in touch with them that this wasn't just a business transaction. There was something more to it than that. You know, and maybe that's too much to expect. Maybe when you're dealing in uh, billions uh, of pounds or whatever uh, you know the value of arsenal is is certainly uh, around 2 billion that was what the uh, the share uh, purchase of Kroenke uh, from Usmanov valued the 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 club at when you're dealing in that kind of uh, stratosphere maybe the little people who you're taking the shares of don't matter but there is something i mean Kroenke this week uh, via interviews with Raul Senyehi and the new managing director Vinay Venkatesham have said uh, that the fans are the lifeblood of the club. Fans are hugely important. They're focused on you know uh, engagement with the fans and all that kind of stuff. But the way that they act doesn't necessarily back that up in any way. So, you know, I know that people have been really uh, affected by this. And in terms of the general... Uh, uh, percentage of people who have been affected by this, it is very, very small, the amount of people who own shares. But I think you can, if you're an Arsenal fan, you can look at the situation that other fans have found themselves in and and feel for them, uh, even if you don't necessarily think, okay, look, they're getting £28,000 per share. That's great. I'd love £28,000. But like you say, you know, would you would you sell your dog for that, or would you sell your firstborn kid for that? You know, if it's something you have an emotional attachment to, it's very difficult to let it go. Well, I suppose the, the easiest thing is if someone came and offered you an amount of money to stop supporting your team. Yeah, would you take it? Is there a price at which your your loyalty no longer matters? Would you take fifty grand not to not to watch another Arsenal game ever? And obviously, you know, they have the, they can keep going on watching Arsenal. They can keep supporting them, but but they had they also had a part of their club that that belonged to them, and they've had that removed. I, mm. I don't feel sorry for them financially, but I think what you know, I think what's really interesting about about the whole subject is that the letters were antagonistic because that's how share transactions are conducted, and that's the language of lawyers and fi- you know financial houses and the people who oversee these processes. And when mm. it's in a company or or it's a normal share transaction, no one cares because, yeah, you have to sell your share and you, you don't care about your share and you've got your dividend and that's great. You've, you've, it's all worked for everybody. Everyone's a winner. 
but that's not really how we think about football clubs. And so treating a football club like a business makes sense on that side, on their side of the aisle, on KSE side of the aisle for the lawyers and for the, for the intermediaries. But to the fans, it, it, it really jars because that's not how we think of our football teams. There isn't a price for all of us on, on how much we on how much we consider giving up our football club, yeah. giving up a piece of our football club. And I think that there is a there is a resonance in this story for, for everyone, whether they support Arsenal or not, really, that it is yet another example of how the game is is being taken away from the people who who do make it exist, who, you know, if we didn't buy the TV subscriptions, if we didn't buy the tickets, if we didn't buy the shirts, football would not exist as we know it. And there yeah. is a real power in being a fan there. But with with every year that goes past, with every takeover, with every transaction, with with every game that's kind of televised, or or with every, with everything that's done that's not got the, the fans' interests at heart, whether they're match going fans or or fans from afar, the game gets taken away from all of us a little bit. And yeah. I think that the, the the it's too much to call it a plight. It's not quite a plight, but the the loss that the Arsenal shareholders, the individual shareholders, are dealing with is another little kind of microcosm of that. that the, these were people who had that intimate connection to their club, and that does not that no longer exists in the modern world. I think that a lot of people sort of said Germany to me, but even the, the mechanism in Germany is slightly different. You are part of a fan consortium, effectively, that owns 51% of a team, but you don't have an individual little piece of paper that says this bit is yours. You, you, share number 939 is mm. yours. It own, it, you know, it, it's for you. No one else has got that. And I think that makes it somehow more intimate, somehow more personal. But those, all of that is kind of moving away and increasingly football is run by people who do see it as a business and see it as something in which money basically makes problems go away. And, you know, why would you be upset? You've got, tw- you've got 28 grand. Yeah. What, what is there to be upset about? Mm. But that's, that doesn't really connect with, with what football teams mean to people. And maybe that's silly and naive and nonsensical and anachronistic but i think it's true for fans of all ages and of all teams that it's something more than just a transaction that's not what football is to any of us and to see it i guess to see it played out so blatantly as it had to be in the circumstances is what makes it so so striking and i think for the people involved so painful yeah i mean the thing about it is is that when you uh, it's true of arsenal i'm sure it's true of almost every premier league football club they do an awful lot of good work to connect with their fans, with the communities, whether it's social media, whether it's uh, local uh, initiatives that they do. Arsenal have have got a great community scheme going on. They do amazing work around Islington and North London. But things like this sort of become like the representative view of what it is or how a club connects with its fans or how a club treats its fans. You know, these are the the actions of the decision makers and that's hard for people to take and for fans to take is that ultimately these are the people that are running your football club they're the ones that are making the decisions uh, that are going to impact and affect the 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 success of the football club in many ways and people find it hard sometimes to separate the ruthlessness of the business people uh, from the job that they're supposed to do in many ways so they're supposed to uh, or we as fans I think like to think that the people who run our football clubs have the same bottom line that we do and our bottom line is success and good football and winning trophies that's what every football fan wants from their club whereas the people nowadays who are running football clubs don't necessarily see it that way you know KSE said in their 
said in their uh, offer document to to buy Usmanov shares. You know, they want to see Arsenal competing again at the highest level for the Premier League and for the Champions League, which is great. You know, I could go out and say that in the morning if I was the, uh, the owner of Arsenal, but how do I make that happen? And the evidence I think that we have from the interviews that they've done recently or the, the message that they're getting out there is that things are going to carry on the way they've always carried on, that the the stated ambition, whether people like it or not, money does talk in football. Mm-hmm. They're not prepared to back that up with their own money in any way. They're going to let Arsenal finance things. And some people will say that's the right way to do it. But it, there is there is uh, there is a bit of a a difference between what it is they're saying and what it is they're doing. And I think that frustrates people as well. Yeah, I think it's, well, the whole, the whole relationship between football and money, I think is really interesting and, and significant because so much of, so much of football depends on money, which is really sort of blatantly obvious thing to say. But I think fans have a real, a really kind of not hypocritical relationship, but a, a kind of contradictory relationship with money because fans want more more empowerment they want to feel more involved they want they want their clubs to return to to how things used to be where it did feel as though there was that greater semblance of community where but they also want their play their, their clubs to sign the best players and mm. to to pay the most wages and to have a team full of stars and, and that's we are all guilty of that that inherent contradiction and i guess that that's something that that the owners play on a little bit almost that they know that what I, I have a lot of admiration for the, for the idea of self sustainability, and I think that's really important for for teams that that they feel as though they've earned their success in some way, whether that's through signing loads of kind of noodle partnerships in in Manchester United's <laughs> case, or whether it's that kind of sell and buy better model that, that I guess Liverpool have, have maybe used the best in recent years, or even Tottenham. And that will not this will not be a, pop, a popular sort of citation but Spurs have done a lot of admirable stuff getting a team together a young team and helping it grow with a really good coach and they all feel in some way more legitimate to most fans than say Paris Saint-Germain going out and signing Neymar because they've got loads of Qatari money and I think most fans would like to think that they wouldn't want to be a PSG but at the same time see a lot of people kind of asking their owners to spend more or, or criticise them for not spending, en- spending enough or, or what have you. So I, I think there is a kind of, there is a contradiction in the way we see money and, and how it should be spent. Mm. So it, it, it's hard to criticise Arsenal or KSE's desire to, for Arsenal to, to be self-sustaining because that can work. It maybe can't work when you have the richest team having the best manager and the best players. That, the, the combination of the three is probably too much for anyone to catch City at the moment. But, in a normal world, you know, when, when Guardiola leaves Manchester City, maybe the, level, the playing field is levelled a bit more and Arsenal can can succeed again at that level. I think the, the problem for me with KSC is the sense that they don't really have any feeling for the sport or for the club. There is mm. no sense that they are kind of embedded in football in a, in a sort of native way. They feel very much like they are using it as a, as a resource to exploit as much as something that they that they want to to thrive in. You, the parallel with Liverpool, I guess, is easy because they're both American owners, but you get the sense that FSG, the group that owns Liverpool, genuinely want to win. Whereas with Arsenal, there has been this long-standing feeling that, that as far as KSE is concerned, as long as the stasis is sufficiently lucrative, that'll kind of do. Yeah. And they're trapped in between two worlds where they have this model that is, is basically praiseworthy, but because it's, they're not fully committed to it and because they're not, they're not, 
they haven't maybe had the, the, the personnel and the expertise in-house to make it work really, really well. They're kind of going nowhere. And at the same time, you've got Man City and Chelsea and whoever else coming along and spending loads of money. And Arsenal, obviously, after a while, fall behind because they're not able to compete anymore. Um, hopefully, KSE mean that they want to see an Arsenal that competes at the highest level again. Mm. But I think given where they've taken the club, that's probably quite hard to do unless you invest yeah. extra money as well as, as the money that Arsenal generates, I suppose. Just broadening the topic slightly in terms of football ownership and the people who own football clubs these days, I think as a football fan, you have to have a certain amount of cognitive dissonance, you might say, um, to come to terms with some of the things that happen. And we see it with players, not just with owners. You know, fans will overlook the bad behaviour of a player on the pitch, off the pitch. They're quite happy to overlook crimes committed in the real world as long as that player is useful to the team. So these are things we all deal with in our own way, the the moral quandaries of who owns our, our football clubs. There was a really good book actually out last year. We did a podcast on it with James Montague. It was called The Billionaire's Club. And it says the unstoppable rise of football super rich owners. And once you get into that world, you know, everyone can say they're, um, you'll find it hard to find a nice billionaire you know, mm. because of because of the, the, the realms and the business worlds and everything else that they operate in. I mean, should there be concern about who is owning football clubs and where the money comes from? And at what point is it possible or is it even possible for football fans to say, actually, we, we can't tolerate this anymore. This money or this owner should not be part and parcel of the game that we all purport to love. Well, that's that, that's where the contradiction comes in, isn't it? Because it's it's it would be nice to think that fans could get together and say, right, we've had enough of this. This is not these are not the not these are not the people necessarily, but this is not the way we want our sport to be. We do not feel this is the best way to to get the the most out of these social institutions, which mm. which is what clubs are. Um, but then at the same time all fans are secretly thinking, well, we'd quite like to have a rich owner, but also we'd quite like none of our rivals to have a rich owner because then we could win. <laughs> yeah. And there's not the tribalism inherent in the sport makes it really, really hard for fans to act as as, as one. And I've, so I've always thought that if you want to, you know, if you're serious about changing the way that football is run, what fans need to do is get together and not attend matches and n- refuse to buy merchandise and... Uh, refuse to pay for Sky subscriptions and what have you. To, you, you need that. Consumers ultimately, in a, in a marketplace, consumers ultimately have the power. But with football, I guess it's too diffuse and there's too many people and there's always someone ready to step in to take your ticket if you if, if you give it up. You know, most of the major clubs now have got waiting lists tens of thousands long. Um, that, that That is unrealistic. I think there should be a lot of concern about the people who own football, uh, football clubs some, I think, are better than others, but I'm pretty sure that with most of them, if you go back far enough, you'll find something that is morally slightly dodgy mm. in the way they've conducted their business, whether that's, whether that's you know, you, there's a lot of talk about human rights abuses with, with Abu Dhabi, for example, or with, with Qatar, and they're, they're hugely important and, and massive, massively significant. But at the same time, you have to hold everyone to the same standard. So do you then say, well, Standard Chartered, the bank that sponsors Liverpool, were indicted, I think, in 2015 for uh, for huge sort of money laundering 
allegations involving washing mafia money and drug cartel money is it, that doesn't sound like it's the sort of thing I would I would like to be associated with my club. So mm. so should should they not be allowed into football? And I'm sure with pretty much every owner, every major sponsor, there there will be something to make you think. Well, it was the Barclays Premier League for quite a long time? You know, the Barclays banking practice is entirely yeah. up to to scratch. And who's making those calls? That's the other thing. Is who's who is the judge on this? On, on where we draw the line? Um, the, the, but then. Well, in fact, the other thing I should say is it makes me really uncomfortable when, when you see that stuff used as a stick to beat a football team with. So you see sort of the question of human rights abuses in Abu Dhabi used by Manchester United fans to to say, well, at least we're not owned by this. And you think, well, hang on, the, you know, the deaths of, of indentured workers and not really the sort of thing that should make you feel better about 2-1 defeats. That's not really getting things into, into proportion. So it's... It's the sort of thing that I think we should all be concerned about, but I think deep down, if your team is winning, you're probably not. Yeah. The the only thing being that you do wonder what the end point is. That at some point, it didn't used to be the case that football football attracted these incredibly rich sort of global global potentates. At some point, they might may find that there is there is a ve- a better vehicle to express their their competition or their status or whatever it is that they that they see football as a as a as a vehicle to do, and that they all have an ulterior motive for it. Um, and at that point, what what is left of football? That would be the, the one big worry. But it won't change until fans act, act as one, and fans are not really predisposed towards doing that because they have their own interests in their own clubs yeah. to think about before they think about the health of the game. That's true. I mean, everybody, you're denying yourself something that you love or something you've invested in, uh, you know, with your time and your emotion and everything else. I mean, it, we have it at, at Arsenal, for example, with Fly Emirates and the uh, the situation with, with LGBT rights, uh, you know, in the Emirates. Um, so it is something that everybody has to deal with on their own uh, at this moment in time. It's, uh, as you say, the collective is powerful if you can make it a collective. At the moment, it's perhaps concerned individuals, uh, and that's about the size of it. So, look, it's a, it's an interesting topic and one I'm sure that will raise its uh, head again. People can read that article on the New York Times, by the way, the website. I'll put a link to it on this. I just before we go, want to just get some thoughts on what's happening on the pitch at Arsenal. Uh, it's 10 wins in a row, as everybody knows. Uh, Unai Emery, having started the season with two very tricky games, has, has led his team to, I think we're in the top four now, just two points behind the leaders. Are Arsenal maybe ahead of where you thought they might be in the table at this point? Yeah, to an extent. I think you, you, I'm really intrigued, in, intrigued to see what happens in the Liverpool game, which I mm. think is what start the start of November. Yeah, That seems like a... a after Arsenal had this incredible run and you can't take anything away from, from Emery. Or I find it really odd when people say, well, yeah, but look at, look at who they've played. And you think, well, what else are they meant to do? Yeah, you know, exactly. Ask for a harder fixture list. It's, but I think, you know, by the time they run to Liverpool at the Emirates, Liverpool haven't been playing well this season, particularly they, they keep winning games, which is an impressive trait. But that, that'll be a good chance, I think, to, to gauge the strength of both of those teams. I think it's really unfortunate for Arsenal, for Chelsea and for Spurs that the standards this year seem to be so high. I was thinking last night, actually, you could well get five or six teams breaking 80 points, which is astonishing because it just it just seemed as though the, the bottom 14, maybe with, you know Leicester maybe away will be a tricky one for a few teams, Everton away will be tricky, I guess. The London clubs always have the issue of, of the fact there's so many teams in London, so there's so many kind of high-pressure games there. But you're going to get five or six teams depending on what happens with Man United, recording point totals that should really get you into second in most years. 
and there's a good chance that one of them will miss out on the Champions League entirely because the leads become so so imbalanced. Yeah. Um, I think Arsenal have started incredibly well. I mean, to to be two points off the leaders, nine games in, you genuinely cannot fault Arsenal's start. They they were unlucky, I thought, not to get something from the, the Chelsea game. City outplayed them, but that I think is to be expected, not just because Arsenal had a new manager, but because Man City are the best team in Europe. But there's no reason, certainly, that Arsenal shouldn't be thinking about the Champions League. Uh, and to be honest, the, I, th- I have a feeling this is going to be a slightly weird season because we're going to see a lot riding on the games between the top five or six, depending on how you count Man United, uh, and then basically see all of those teams just beating everybody else relatively comfortably. So it'll be a, a season of really fine margins, which in a way will make all of them look a bit better than they are, but in a way might maybe mean they don't get quite as much credit as they, they deserve for, for how good they've become and how quickly. But in terms of, in terms of Arsenal... They seem relatively well balanced. I think the, the fact that defensively they're maybe not quite as sturdy as they might be is, is relatively has been quite well documented. But there's no reason to think they can't keep pace at least with with City and Liverpool at the top for quite a long time. It might be that quality eventually tells and and City streak away. But there's there's no reason to believe that Arsenal should be thinking about sort of finishing fifth, which was when Emery came in seemed to be the target he was set was sort of stabilise Arsenal. In an, in a, in or just outside the top four, he should be thinking now that you know there's no reason they couldn't be second or third at Christmas, because there are more easy games in the Premier League than there are difficult games, and as long as they keep on swatting those lesser sides aside, they'll stick around. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, my expectation has certainly changed from the point where I thought it would be a really really good season for him to get us back into the top four. I'm now thinking. Well, yeah, I've got a bit of an expectation here that given the way that we played in these, you know, 10 games uh, in the Premier League, I don't know if it's 10 Premier League games. I know the the 10 wins have come with some Europa League games as well. So maybe seven, uh, eight wins in a row in in the Premier League. Um, It has changed my expectation. I think there's enough quality in the squad. He's starting to get a bit more out of Mesut Ozil, which is clearly an important part of, of getting back into that top four. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would be at this point disappointed if we didn't finish in the top four. But as you say, it's going to be, it's going to be a big scrap. Um, and I think you know, you talk about the Liverpool game at the start of November. There's Tottenham and Man United within three days of each other at the start of December, mm. as well. And I think those games will perhaps tell us more about where Arsenal are under Unai Emery. Yeah, I think so. That and especially there's there's kind of a what's the word? There's a there's an effect where. We're playing two two rivals so closely together does sort of lend extra importance to those games, even though they are worth as much as if you play them a month apart. Yeah, um, it, it kind of it can make or break momentum. The um, I think the big issue for everybody, as I say, is, is that the the bar is going to be so high to certainly to win the title. It may be that it looks like the way they're playing that if if anyone wants to beat Man City to the title, they're going to have to get more than a hundred points, which is extraordinary. Yeah. I think to finish second, you might need more than 90. Arsenal maybe won't be quite ready to get that just yet. But they've, they, they, they seem to, to have found a way to play that's, that's much more expressive than it was, seems a bit more dynamic than last year, I think. It's, Arsenal have always played pretty football under Wenger, but it's not always been quite so effective. I think there is a, a sense around the club of, of freshness, of optimism. They've always done on these runs. That's the, I suppose that's the one thing that even <laughs> under Wenger, every season there was a run where Arsenal suddenly won loads of games and you thought, oh, hang on, this, this means they finally clicked. And then they go and lose at West Brom. Mm. And I mean, West Brom aren't there anymore, which is certainly an advantage for Hurrah. Arsenal. <laughs> the, um, 
or Stoke. In fact, in fact, the lead the lead is really weighted towards Arsenal this season. Um, <laughs> but the, the other thing is that because United have been so bad, it's trying to change the the complexion of the lead a little bit. So Arsenal should certainly be thinking fifth as a minimum. They, they, those five teams should not be thinking Man United will overtake them. Yeah, they, they'll come a point where where it all clicks at United and they, they they win a few games in a row, but. The, the the five that are seven points ahead of them should be thinking right. That's enough of a cushion to put them away now in terms of the Champions League. So there should be there should be a minimum expectation for Arsenal fifth. Uh, Spurs have like Liverpool are winning games but not playing well. Chelsea, I think we saw against um, against United at the weekend, are maybe not quite as ready as we all thought they were. Maurizio Sarri's been very honest in saying that they they're not ready. Looks like he knows more about football than everybody else, which I think is, is understandable. Um, You'd say City and Liverpool look good at least to finish in the Champions League positions, but you, you never know. With Liverpool, they've not been the expectations haven't been quite as high on them for a long time, so that might count against them. So I think that Arsenal should be thinking certainly top four is is very much on. They, there's no reason why they shouldn't be in the mix for that, and aiming to finish as high as possible. The one worry would be that against the the, the teams who they would consider their peers, mm. that's that's when. The, the slight flaws, the bits that Emery's not been able to work on, the slight weaknesses in the team, the wrinkles, that's when they will be exposed. And it may be that there's a lot of weight on those games this season. But as you say, Liverpool, Spurs and United by by kind of mid-December, that will give everybody an idea of exactly how good Arsenal are. But that's not to, yeah, to take anything away at all from what they've done so far. They, they've won 10 games in a row in all, in all competitions and they look quite comfortable doing it. That's, that sounds like a pretty good start to the season to me. Yep, uh, happy enough at this end and we'll see, uh, we'll see how these uh, games against the big teams go. Rory, as ever, uh, great to talk to you. Thanks a million. No, pleasure. Thanks, mate. Rory is on Twitter, at Rory Smith. That is at Rory Smith. And you can find a link to the article in which he speaks to those Arsenal shareholders uh, on the blog today, just click on the post which has today's Arsecast on it and you'll find a, a link there to read it on the New York Times website. Uh, I'm going to leave it there for this week's podcast. We have a game on Sunday against Crystal Palace. I know we could possibly do a bit of a preview here on the podcast, but it's uh, it's late. You know, the game just finished this evening. Uh, I've still got work to do on Arsblog News, where you can find some of the pregame stuff for Crystal Palace, coincidentally, over the coming days. So make sure you check that out, arsblog.news. And, of course, we'll preview the game on arsblog.com on Sunday morning. So uh, so click on and do all the reading and what have you for that. Uh, James and I will be looking back on the Palace game. I'm not quite sure when, whether it's Sunday evening this week or Monday morning, but we will have an Arscast extra for you after the Crystal Palace game. Just a reminder that there's lots of of extra content, lots of extra stuff to listen to and read on our Patreon. Every subscription helps everything that we do here on Arsblog. If you fancy being a member and getting access to all that content, go to patreon.com forward slash Arsblog. It's just a fiver a month plus VAT if you're in the EU and uh, you get instant access to everything that we've got on our Patreon site. Lots of cool stuff in there as well. Lots more to come too. So I'm going to leave it there for this one. I'll catch you on the Arscast Extra with James and until the next Arscast, take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye.
Arsenal Football Club today announced that all former shareholders are to be flogged within an inch of their lives. The edict comes from the new owner, American businessman Stan Kroenke, who cares very deeply about the club. In a statement, he said, We here at KSE want only the best for... Insert franchise name here. Which is why we're gonna whip you like the dogs you are. 